We are privileged this morning to hear from Terry Hibbert. He has preached here before as a member of our congregation now, though he was previously a pastor at Coquitlam Presbyterian, and it's such a joy to have you bring the word to us this morning. So, welcome. Thank you, Ariel. Yeah, it's been good to uh, be here and be uh, part of the congregation. My wife and I have been worshiping here since uh, last August. And uh, it's good, you know, to be in a congregation uh, which builds its ministry, its worship on the Word of God. And that is something that Paul gets into because there were detractors in that Galatian congregation. So that's the issue. Uh, something that's a little, uh, a little complicated when you get in the second half of it. But I'm going to divide this into uh, two parts, verses 8 to 20, where Paul expresses his concern uh, for the congregation because of false teachers that have entered into it. And then verses 21 to 31, where he really gets into the old covenant, the difference between the old and the new covenant, and how the new will supersede the old covenant. And it's the second section that I'd like to spend most of my time on this morning. And uh, because that section, he's dealing with those who are coming in and spreading a false gospel. It's a concern. And those Judaizers who were coming in are using similar tactics that liberal churches do today when they quote Jesus and then use his words to declare something that was once a sin is no longer a sin. But briefly, we'll look at the first section, and I want to read that, and it'll be on the screen for you, Galatians 4, 8 to 20, from the New Living Translation. And Paul is writing because he's not actually there at the church. And he says, before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say, now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless principles of this world? You're trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you. I plead with you to live as I do in the freedom from these things. For I've become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. You did not mistreat me when I first preached to you. Surely you remember that I was sick when I first brought you the good news. But even though my condition tempted you to reject me, you did not despise me or turn me away. No, you took me in and cared for me as though I were an angel from God, or even Christ Jesus himself. Where is that joyful and grateful spirit that you felt then? I am sure you would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me if it were possible. Have I now become your enemy? because I am telling you the truth. Those false teachers are so eager to win your favor, but their intentions are not good. They are trying to shut you off from me so that you will pay attention only to them. If someone is eager to do good things for you, that's all right, but let them do it all the time, not just when I'm with you. Oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again, and they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. 
I wish I were with you right now so I could change my tone, but at this distance, I do not know how else to help you. Now, in this section, Paul is pleading with the Galatians on the basis of a personal relationship that he had with the congregation when he first started it. And indeed, the majority uh, who made up that congregation were Gentiles. This was in Galatia, Asia Minor. It wasn't in Israel. It was beyond their borders. And so along come some Jewish Christians, probably from the Church of Jerusalem, teaching that believing in Jesus simply was not enough that they had to abide by various rules and traditions of the Mosaic law. And you've heard this before by the previous chapters, you know, things like getting circumcised and so on. And they had to do these things in order to be fully Christian. And the Apostle Paul is appalled by this kind of teaching because it's bringing doubt into the minds of those whom he had helped lead to the Lord in the first place. And now they were wondering, are we really Christians or not? And he says in verse 11, I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. And then in verse 12, he pleads with them to live as he does in the freedom of Christ, and not to give up that freedom by returning to the Pharisaic laws of the Old Testament. And remember, it was Jesus who said, Matthew 5, 17, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And Paul thought the Galatians were indeed born again, but now he worries it may have been a case of false labor. And he says in verse 10, you are trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days and months and seasons and years. By, in other words, by following the Jewish religious festivals. Be saying now you do not have to earn favor with God because Jesus has paid the price of your sins. And what the Galatians were now being taught was that just following God and being a genuine disciple of Christ uh, was more one's duty than accepting the free grace that God had given them through his Son. And, you know, we often still see that uh, today amongst people, you know, thinking that, well, if I go to church a couple of times a year, Christmas, Easter, maybe a couple of other times, you know, that they'll be fine with God. And I suppose the one good thing about that is they might on occasions pick up on the true meaning of the gospel. But to do that, just to keep in God's good books, won't cut it come judgment day. And Paul won't let this go. You know, he's like a, like a bulldog that's got a hold of your ankle and just clings to it. He won't let go of it. And he continues in verse 15, where is that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then, you know, when Paul first started preaching the gospel in Galatia. And when he first arrived there, you know, he says back in verse 12, you did not mistreat me when I first preached to you. And he mentions in the next couple of verses uh, that he had an ailment. Now, the Bible doesn't say specifically what that ailment was, but there is a couple of thoughts. There's some evidence that uh, this ailment caused a disfigurement in his body, or possibly it was an eye problem because of his reference to the Galatians possibly giving their eyes to him in verse 15. But whatever he says, it was. He says in verse 14, you did not reject or despise 
or turned me away. No, you cared for me as though I were an angel from God. And there was an obvious love for Paul from the congregation for the message that he was preaching. But now, and this may be a few months, it could be a year later, but now they were starting to turn against Paul. And their previous hospitality was turning into hostility. And it appeared to be because of the Judaizers denigrating Paul and denying his gospel. And so Paul says in verse 16, Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? And to pull this up today just briefly, you know, like Paul, pastors who are faithful to God's work and God's ministry at times will tell people some things that they really don't want to hear. Maybe it doesn't fit the cultural context in which we now live. But if it's in Scripture, then God's true children will still receive it. And we should know that if our loving Heavenly Father tells us something that we prefer not to hear, you know, because of the social climate in which we live, it must still be for our own good. And Jesus affirmed this very simply. You probably know the verse, John 15, 14, 15. If you love me, you will what? Anybody remember? You will obey my commandments, yes. So this is the issue throughout Paul's letter to the Galatians and his reason for writing to them, the false teaching that was now going on in that congregation. So then we come to uh, verses 21 to 31. And Paul seeks to explain to his listeners how the actual teaching of the old covenant that they were now receiving was distorted and it was leading them astray. And I know some commentators have said this is a difficult portion of the letter to the Galatians for us to immediately understand. But let's look at this and let's first read those verses 21 to 31. And I've entitled this Abraham's Two Children. So Paul continues writing, Tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? The Scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave woman and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave woman was born in human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. That's a major distinction, and it's one that uh, Paul builds his arguments upon. Verse 24, these two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai, where people received the law that enslaved them. And now Jerusalem is just like Mount Sinai in Arabia because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the free woman and she is our mother. That's an important point too. And then he quotes Isaiah 54.1 referring to, to Sarah. Rejoice, O childless woman, you who have never given birth. Break into a joyful shout, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. And then he concludes, And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise. 
just like Isaac. But you are now being persecuted by those who want you to keep the law, just as Ishmael, the child born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. But what do the Scriptures say about that? Get rid of the slave and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the free woman's son. So, dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. And that's what he, uh, you know, builds his argument upon. Now, sometimes it's said, you know, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who divide the world into two kinds of people and those who do not. Well, the Apostle Paul was in the former category because he divided people into two groups, the slaves and the free. The slaves were under the law, outside of Christ, while the free are in Christ and no longer under the law because they live by faith. And this contrast between law and faith, between religious bondage and religious freedom, runs throughout this letter to the Galatians. And he writes these verses in order to help those who are slaves to religion to ultimately find true freedom in Christ Jesus. So let's dive into this and to understand a rather complicated biblical argument, it helps to look at the time when Paul started his uh, missionary work in Asia Minor and in Galatia. And Paul preached the good news about Jesus Christ. And as a result of his evangelistic efforts, uh, new churches were planted throughout the region. It's amazing the number of congregations that Paul was able to start. But shortly after that, a group of Jewish Christian missionaries arrived in Galatia to, in effect, correct the gospel that Paul had been preaching. They wanted the Gentiles to become Jews in order to be really good bona fide Christians. And what they were doing was trying to add the law of Moses on top of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were keeping Jewish traditions, you know, that were unnecessary for Christians. Circumcision, the various Jewish, Jewish festivals, and so on. And subsequently, enslaving the, con the Galatian congregation to all kinds of those Old Testament rituals. I put a slide up there that shows a comparison between slave and free, and you can just keep that in mind as we uh, go through this. You know, in, in, in some ways, if we're not careful, we can end up doing the same type of a thing, forgetting that Christianity is a form of liberty. It's not slavery. We're not bound by a particular set of rules and regulations discerned by churches or church hierarchies and so on. And if we do that, we end up reducing our faith as one of works rather than one of grace. And we end up uh, evaluating our spiritual standing by what we do and what we do for the Lord, more so than what the Lord has done for us. And so in this, in his particular situation, Paul decides to use the Torah, the Old Testament law, to make his point. And in verse 21, he says this, tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? You know, and I've heard it, uh, these sort of trivial things. Does the Bible say that God helps those who help themselves? Many people answered yes to that. You know, do you really know what the Scriptures teach? It's 
that type of question. And so Paul takes an example from the book of Genesis way before Moses received the law and the example of Abraham and the birth of his two sons. And you see, before he could help them understand the gospel of free grace, what he wanted to do was correct their interpretation of Abraham and what they were being taught about him. So he presents his argument in three ways, three stages, the historical, the allegorical, and the personal. And we'll take a brief look at each of these. First of all, the uh, historical background. Uh, Paul recounts that uh, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman, and that the son of the slave woman, Hagar, was born of the flesh, while the son of the free woman, Sarah, was born through promise. And the story of the births of both Abraham's sons, you can read that in Genesis chapter 16 through 18. But the chapter before that, chapter 15, God promises Abraham that he will indeed have a son who will inherit everything that God has in store for Abraham and his legacy. But then in Genesis 16, Sarah, Abraham's wife, she's getting old and getting beyond the childbearing age, and she's feeling the Lord has forgotten about her and about her husband. And if that happens, then her husband's going to be left without any sons to carry on his legacy. So what does she do? She tells Abraham to sleep with her maidservant, which he does. Now, I know we're supposed to listen to our wives, but there are some things. You know, Abraham ultimately gets his act together, but this, and he's concerned. Uh, he's thinking, well, maybe the Lord has forgotten. And we know, you know, the Lord doesn't forget promises that he makes, but that's where Abraham was. And subsequently, Ishmael, his first son, was born. And being the firstborn, typically in that culture, you know, he was the heir apparent to the family uh, fortune and legacy. And ultimately, all that resulted in kind of a dysfunctional family between the two brothers. You can read that in Genesis 21. And the reason that happened was because, very simply, Abraham did not rely upon God's promise, but in effect decided to take things into his own hands. But God had not forgotten Sarah and said to Abraham in Genesis 17 that Sarah would indeed have a son of her own despite both their ages and because of God's promise and against all human expectation, Sarah conceived at the age of 90 and gave birth to a son named Isaac. And that is why Paul calls Isaac the son of a promise. Now, a little more background here, because in those days, there was a difference between the two sons, legally speaking. The boys had the same father, but they had a different mother. And from their perspective, respective mothers, the boys inherited two different legal standings. Ishmael's mother was a slave. Therefore, Ishmael was also a slave. Isaac, on the other hand, was born free. He was the heir of a free woman, Sarah. Sarah was not a slave. She was free. That's one of the crucial differences that Paul wants them to understand here. But there's another difference, too, between the half-brothers. Ishmael, Paul says, was born according to the flesh. 
In other words, Ishmael was procreated in the ordinary human way, as I assume all of us have been. However, Paul is saying that Isaac was not born according to the flesh. What's he mean? Well, he's not saying that Isaac wasn't born in the normal human way, but that the circumstances surrounding his conception were completely extraordinary. He was born of a promise by God himself. When Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. You know, as much as Jesus was born of a promise to Mary, it's the same kind of thing here. And Paul says in verse 29 that Isaac was also born of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, you don't hear a whole lot about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but this is one of the times uh, where he is mentioned. And so Isaac's birth, like Jesus' birth, was the result of God's supernatural intervention. And whereas Isaac was a gift from God, Ishmael was the result of Abraham and Sarah, mom and dad, trying to do things their own way instead of waiting upon the Lord and accepting the promise that they were given. As one commentator has put it, one son was born by proxy, another by promise. One came by works, the other by faith. One was a slave, one was free. And so we can put that analogy up there for you. Ishmael and Isaac represent two different entirely approaches to religion. And there we have it, law against grace, flesh against spirit, and self-reliance against divine dependence. And this actually goes back to Paul's argument in uh, Galatians 3, that true descent from Abraham is not simply physical but rather it is spiritual. That Abraham's true children are not those with an impeccable Jewish genealogy, but those who believe as Abraham believed and obey God as Abraham obeyed God. And he did, you might remember the latest story where he offered Isaac up as a sacrifice and he was about to plunge the dagger in the Lord and intervened. He was willing to obey and trust the Lord. And Paul's point here being that no one can uh, claim to belong to Abraham unless we now belong to Christ. So that's his historical uh, point of view. The second part of his argument is allegorical or illustrative. And Paul then says in verse 24, and this gets a little bit complicated, that the lives of Hagar and Sarah can be interpreted allegorically as two covenants. Hagar is from Mount Sinai, bearing children of slavery. And she corresponds to the uh, present earthly Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. While Sarah bears children who are free, and she corresponds to the Jerusalem above. Two covenants portrayed by these two women and their offspring. You know, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, which in turn, Paul says, correspond to the two cities, the present earthly city of Jerusalem and the heavenly city of Jerusalem. Now, uh, we have a picture of the heavenly city of Jerusalem from the book of Revelation, a couple of scriptures there. Revelation 3.12, the risen Christ references the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God. 
And then John, Revelation 21, verse 2 says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And in effect, the bride of Christ is the church. It's all believers in Christ. And so when he mentions the Jerusalem from above, he is now representing everyone beyond the old covenant, outside of the uh, confines of the nation of Israel to the Gentile world. We are all Christians. If so, we belong to the new Jerusalem. And we are now bound by a new covenant ushered in by Jesus' death and resurrection. And our citizenship is no longer bondage. It is freedom. Now, in the Galatian congregation, the Judaizers who had come in prided themselves as true sons of Abraham. And actually, Paul admitted they were children of Abraham biologically, but he was saying they were spiritually illegitimate. And in effect, because of their false teaching about the gospel, they were more like the sons of Hagar than the sons of Sarah. And Paul was arguing that it wasn't enough for them to claim Abraham as their father. The crucial question, Paul says, is who is one's mother? If it is Hagar, we are like Ishmael. If it is Sarah, we are like Isaac. And we need to remember that under New Testament times, Jesus came to pay the price of our sins, not just the sins of the Jew. Yes, he was the Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah to come. But Jesus was to pay the price of people of all languages, all nations, all tribes, you name it. And so they had to break out of that old covenant mentality. And that's what Paul was doing on his various missionary uh, trips, starting churches, reaching out to people with the gospel of grace and mercy. And Jesus came to fulfill the old covenant so that the gospel would indeed break the bounds of the old covenant given to the Jews and go to Gentiles all over the world. I mentioned Matthew 5, 17. It's worth remembering. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And being fulfilled, we are no longer under the law, but under grace. And that's what Paul wanted to get into these people's thoughts. Anyone who receives Jesus as Savior and Lord is a son or daughter of Sarah and a true child of Abraham. That's what he's getting at. And then the last point, he makes a personal application here. And a couple of things from verses 28 to 31 that apply to Christians no matter what age we happen to be living in. In verse 28, Paul reaffirms that now, like Isaac, we are children of promise. We are. And it's interesting that the very first thing he mentions after that talks about our life, you know, as the children of God. Uh, new life as Abraham's children. And as a result of that, guess what? Verse 29, we are going to experience persecution. And he puts it this way, but just as at that time, Abraham's time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, 
persecuted him, Isaac, who was born according to the Spirit. So it is also now. And often the persecution that we experience today is not totally by the world, by strangers or by society around us. A lot of the times it is. But it's unfortunately also by other religious people, the nominal church. And think about Jesus for a moment. He was bitterly opposed, rejected, mocked, condemned. By whom? His own people, the Jews, and especially by the religious leaders of his time, the Pharisees, many of whom were pastors of the local congregations, as well as being in the church system of government that they had back then. And this is what Paul was experiencing in this young fledgling congregation. And I say this to you, it is something we still experience today. As it was then, so it is now. And especially within the liberal church, which has denied the virgin birth of Christ. And in some quarters, even denied the resurrection of Christ, and yet still claim to be Christians. And in the case of my former denomination, now redefining marriage as between any two individuals, regardless of gender, completely against the word of God. And actually, the spread of liberalism started back or really started getting underway in the 1800s by the German theologians, people like Frederick uh, Schleiermacher. And even before that, you can go all the way back to Erasmus, and you can see the groundwork being laid to what we have now experienced in the following centuries. And of course, back in the 1800s, didn't take long. It swept through Europe, Great Britain. It came across the Atlantic, and it swept through United States, Canada, and some other countries. And we need to be aware that within the church of today, there are detractors and unfortunately some false teachers exactly as there were in Paul's day. And like Paul, we need to stand firm on the Word of God and not to be afraid to put on the full armor of God, as Paul calls us to in Ephesians 6. Otherwise, we can become like the children of Ishmael rather than like the children of Isaac. And actually, persecution is one way to distill the difference between a true and a false religion. Persecution is what true Christians will face uh, from time to time. It'll happen in some way or another. And going a step further, one wonders if we can really be Christians at all if we start compromising the values, the teachings of God's Word. And it's interesting, as I was looking this up, here's a quote from Martin Luther. Okay, 1500s uh, in that framework. Look what he said, and he wrote a commentary on, this, on Galatians in this portion. If someone does not want to endure persecution from Ishmael, let him not claim he is a Christian. And Paul concludes uh, this section with these words, verses 30 and 31. I believe we have that on a slide for you. He asks the question, what do the Scriptures say? Cast out the slave and her son, for the slave, son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the free woman's son. So, dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. 
And by the way, God uh, did bless Israel because if you read the story, you know, Sarah now wants Hagar gone and Ishmael gone, and Abraham does, kind of boots them out of the family. Well, God didn't leave them alone just to wander in the desert and because as a slave, where are you going to find work? And if you've been booted out of one family, it's going to be tough to find it elsewhere. No, God uh, made Ishmael a father of a great nation. Genesis 17, verse 20, the Arab nation. And Muslims, you probably know, look back to Abraham as their father as well. Well, it's true biologically, but not by the promise of God. And when Paul quotes Sarah in these last two verses, it's a not-too-subtle way of saying that the Galatians need to divest themselves of the Judaizers who have come and spreading the false teaching. See, if salvation comes by grace, then the church cannot tolerate salvation by works. You know, and God still works today the way he worked with Sarah and Abraham. Salvation comes by grace, not by works. Righteousness comes through faith, not through the Old Testament law or any other types of laws that your know, religious bodies think they should put into place. The religion of Ishmael is a religion of works. The religion of Isaac is a religion of grace. Grace of what God has done, grace of what con God continues to do. It's a religion of divine initiative, divine intervention. It is not secular humanism. And that's been declared, at least in the United States, as a religion too. But we need to rely on our Lord. I know there are temptations, you know, that come and go, and you may be tempted like Abraham. God's, you know, so long in answering my prayers, what do I do? And maybe it's good, as Paul reminded the Galatians, think of what happened back then. And if God makes a promise and you sense his leading, you know, don't try to outdo him. Don't try to bring it to pass yourself. God has his timings. And he really does know what's best for each of us. The Ishmaels of this world, they trust in themselves and their righteousness, in effect thinking that they know better than God. The Isaacs will trust only in God through Jesus Christ and through his revealed word in Holy Scripture. The Ishmaels are in bondage because that is what self-reliance ultimately will lead to. The Isaacs enjoy freedom because that's what we experience through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Two covenants, two religions. So, just to conclude with the challenge from Paul's letter, we'll put uh, one more slide up for you. And his challenge is this. You know, who are we to be like? Who are we called to follow? Isaac or Ishmael? It's the same challenge as you see. Joshua made to the people of Israel many years earlier as they entered the promised lands. Joshua 24:15, you probably know it. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the choice we make has and always will have eternal consequences. For only in Christ can we inherit the promises, receive the grace, and enjoy the freedom that God wants to give us.
and enjoy that freedom forever. Amen. I'm going to ask the music group uh, to come forward, and as they do, may we bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, may we take to heart the teachings of your apostle Paul, and may we ever be vigilant, as Paul was, to those who would try to spread another gospel amongst us, a gospel based more on human thinking and philosophy than upon your revealed word in Holy Scripture. May we rely upon the witness and direction of your Holy Spirit in our lives so that we do not fall prey to false teaching as those in Paul's day did. And Lord, if we should, help us to be quick to assess ourselves and repent before you, and knowing that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Father, as Isaac was the son of your promise, so we thank you for your promises in our lives. And may we truly seek to live by them in all that we think and all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, uh, worship group. That, yeah, that is a beautiful song and a great way to end the service. And just one uh, uh, reminder, of uh, we have a couple of people who come down uh, for prayer on my left, and if you'd like to uh, meet with somebody just to uh, ask for a word of prayer after the service, uh, please do that. And I'd like to close with the benediction at the end of the uh, letter of Jude. It's a, it's a good one for really any service. And just wraps up uh, who God is and who he wants to be for us. Let's pray. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.